Lord, have mercy on us. Would to God that on the day in question, the day described in our text for this morning, the Israelites had cried out to God in the words of this song, Lord, have mercy on us. For what we've done and left undone, we fall on your countless mercies. But in spite of Moses' severe anger, in spite of the broken tablets containing the Ten Commandments, and the burning and grinding of their idol into powder, which they were then forced to drink. In spite of all this, we read in verse 25 that what Moses saw was not a penitent or repentful people, but according to verse 25, a people running wild, a people still out of control in their immorality. And it was then and only then that Moses took up his position at the main entrance to the camp, the place where judgment was typically pronounced. And he cried out, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Well, the Hebrew is more clipped. It reminds us of the human tendency to reduce things of great importance to just a few basic words. The Hebrew says, for God, for me. For God to me. And we read in verse 26 that all the Levites rallied to him. Now we need to stop here just for a moment because I ran into this a couple weeks ago. We were talking about all as it's used in the scriptures. And someone here asked me about that. And I said, you know, I'm going to answer that. The Hebrew use of the word all is unlike our use of that word. Have you ever wondered about that? It sometimes means at least one from every tribe. So if you had just one person from the 12 tribes, you might say, all Israel, meaning somebody from every tribe. On other occasions, it's used to mean a majority or a core group of leaders. But on this occasion, it's pretty clear that we're to understand that at the very least, a great number a significant majority of those who were Levites responded to Moses' appeal. And that raises a question, who were these Levites and why did they respond when others didn't? They were the sons of Levi, one of the twelve sons of Jacob. They were of the same tribe as Moses and that might help us understand why they were the ones to respond to his appeal. But there's more to be said here. It would seem that the members of this tribe were uniquely jealous for God's honor. While at the time of this event they had not yet been designated as the priestly tribe, they soon would be. In fact, they would be put in charge of overseeing and promoting the holiness of all Israel. Holiness of God toward his people and holiness of the people toward their God. And their work would be maintaining, protecting, and even policing the tabernacle of the Lord. They would on occasion become teachers of the law. So unique was their role among their brothers that when Israel arrived in the land of promise, every tribe except the Levites would be given an inheritance of land while the Levites' inheritance was said to be their special relationship 
with God himself. Now from this and from the Levites' role in our text for today, we might be tempted to conclude that um, they were in fact more godly, more righteous than the members of the other tribes. But that would be a mistake. If not before, certainly by the time we get to the New Testament era and the days of Christ's earthly ministry, the Levites had become little better than the Pharisees. In fact, they are included sometimes when Jesus says the Pharisees. They were law keepers. They had become hypocritical in their practice of religion. They were all religious form and no power. Little understanding of what God was up to in their age. So then my appeal to you this morning to live and love like a Levite is not at all generic. It is rather an appeal to rise to the level of love and devotion to, God's, to God that was exemplified by the Levites on this one particular day in this one particular instance. It was, after all, a day when all Israel was called upon to declare their loyalty to the God of their fathers, but only the Levites rose to the occasion. I want you to consider with me then what it means to live and love like a Levite on this particular day in question. First, one must identify openly with God and His cause. It's significant to note that Moses' appeal to God's people was as nondescript and as open-ended as it could be. Whoever is for the Lord, to me. Follow me, if you will. In this regard, regard, Moses' call is reminiscent of the call of Christ on His disciples. Come, follow me. Or like Joshua's call to love and loyalty, choose this day whom you will serve. There's no itemized agenda. There's no itinerary of what lies ahead. No contract with a statement of workers' rights. No prenuptial agreement with conditions itemized in case things don't work out. It was simply an appeal for his hearers to openly identify with their God. Furthermore, its intent is not to divide between the people of God and the unbelieving people groups around them, as such calls often were. No, Moses' intention here is clearly to divide those within the household of faith, to divide those who are in this thing for the free manna and quail, those who are in it for the promise of a land of milk and honey, from those who are truly devoted to God and His purpose for them, no matter what the world or the devil might throw in their way. So then what we have here is a serious reminder that even within the household of faith, even within the local church, there exists in every age a division between those who are along for the ride and those who are deeply devoted to the God of Scripture and His plan for their lives. I think sometimes that it might seem curious to you that week in and week out, Pastor Jay concludes his sermons with an appeal to those who have never turned from their sin, repented, and received the gift of forgiveness. You might say, well, Jay, you know, you're, you're talking to Christians. You're talking to the household of faith. Why do you do that almost every Sunday? But there is a good biblical reason for what he's doing. 
Scripture teaches us that not all Israel was true Israel. Our Lord Christ taught us in Matthew 7, 21 that not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And as we read in the epistles, we learn over and over again that not all who were in the physical church were devoted to Christ. And that being the case, every one of us would do well to ask ourselves and to answer with integrity the question posed by Moses in our text for today, the bottom line question, who am I for? Where do my ultimate loyalties lie? Am I just along for the ride? Or is my bottom line loyalty to Christ no matter what? But there's another important application from this text that I think we should not just pass over. Just as surely as Pastor Jay makes regular appeals for each and every one of us to turn from our sin and devote our lives to Christ, just so surely does he call on us to openly identify with Christ in a manner which he has chosen for this age, namely baptism. Why is that? Because the call to take our stand for Christ implies an open identification with him. Whoever is for God, come to me. Step out, take your stand with me. And just so, in this present age, when God calls us to turn from our sin and devote our lives to him, he always calls upon us, he always includes the idea of open identification with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. A second trait exemplified by a true Levite is that he must have but one master and one lover. I think both the context and the text for today impress this truth on us. To begin with, the sad events of the day described in our text are the result of Israel's faulty conclusion that they could have more than one God, that they could take other lovers and have other masters in their lives. But in doing so, they forgot that our God is a jealous God who will not share us with other masters or other lovers. But if that principle is taught in the context of our passage, it's even more present in the text itself. Because here in these verses is a startling example of the truth that God will not permit competitors for our love or our obedience. Indeed, even a man's own family must not be permitted to be a rival for God's supremacy in our lives. And before this day was done, the Levites would have to choose between their love for country, their love for their own tribe, their love for their own families, or their love for God. And that choice would set them apart from those who wish to share, wish to split their love and devotion among a group of lovers. It's true that under the law, God's people were instructed to love both God and their neighbor. It's equally true that in the New Testament scriptures, we, are, we were followers of Christ, are told that we are to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is his. So there are on occasion ways in which we can understand that there are more than one master in our lives, more than one love. 
Again, we're told that we are to love family, but we are to love God more than we love father, mother, son, or daughter. So we read in Matthew 10, 37, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me, anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That suggests that we who are truly children of God and followers of Christ may legitimately have more than one love, so long as Christ is our great love, and more than one master, so long as Christ is our ultimate master. But there are other passages and other places where Scripture insists that none of these other masters or lovers are to be permitted to compete with our love for God. That at the end of the day, there must be but one ultimate master and one ultimate lover. For our God is a jealous God. He's jealous of both our love and our obedience. At the end of the day, God's call in our lives and our loves is one of exclusivity. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and strength. Don't hold anything back. Don't say, I'll give God 51% of my love and 49% of my grandkids. Paul, writing in Philippians 3, 7 and 1, said, I consider everything else as garbage. Love for Christ must be everything, and everything else must be considered as nothing. Luke chapter 14, verse 26, a verse we very seldom read in our, our services, but one that we need to hear this morning because it speaks to this issue. These are the words of Christ. Luke quotes Christ as saying, if anyone comes to me and does not, are you ready? Hate father, mother, wife, children, even his own life. He's not worthy of me. He's not using hate in the same sense we mean it, but he's saying, if you can't put God on a single pedestal, and if you can't understand that he and he alone is worthy of all your love, then you're not ready to serve me. Think of the parable of the pearl of great price. Merchant who goes out into the marketplace and finds a pearl so perfect, so singular, that he takes everything else he owns and sells it that he might have that one grand pearl of great price. And with regards to our masters, what was it that Jesus said while he was on earth? No man can serve two masters. You'll either serve the one and love the other, or you'll love the other and serve that one. But you cannot, you cannot have two masters. Because you see, when all is said and done, our love for God must, must stand alone, and our obedience to His command must be singular. And only if this principle is true can we explain God's command in verse 27 of our text and the Levites' obedience as described in verse 28. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. We take it from this that God is calling for the extermination of those throughout the tribes who had led his people into idolatry and immorality. If this passage teaches us anything at all, it is that our love for and loyalty to God must know no competitors and no exceptions. 
other loves and loyalties, as legitimate as they may be on their own terms, must never be permitted to compete with or compromise our loyalty to God. A third trait of one who desires to live in love as a Levite is that he or she must be ready and willing to perform a personally distasteful task should God call on him, on her, to do so. It's almost unthinkable to imagine that God would call upon anyone to put to death his or her own brother, friend, or neighbor. Those are the words from our text. But that's exactly what God asked of the Levites on this occasion. True, the future of all Israel and her special relationship with God were at stake. The people of Israel had become just one more people who were worshiping multiple gods. They had entered into deep immorality. They would be no different than the Canaanite nations at all if this immorality was not stemmed, if their willingness to toy with other gods was not stemmed in this moment. And so God asks of them what is extremely difficult. That had to be the most excruciating, the most horrific thing they were ever called upon to do. And yet in verse 28 of this chapter we read, the Levites did as Moses, that is as God commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. By the way, let me be quick to assure you that God will never ask you to prove your loyalty to him by putting to death your family members or friends. No matter how egregious, how blasphemous their words and their actions may be. By his grace and for his purposes, he has assigned us to a very different age, a different dispensation of his activity among men. But there is a lesson to be learned here from this passage, an important lesson for us nonetheless. Namely, that in every age, those who are truly devoted to God must be ready and willing to perform a personally distasteful task should God call upon us to do so. Consider these examples from the past. This is the God who asked Moses to lead two to three million Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to a land of promise he didn't know. And that's why, by the way, Moses was horrified by the very thought and spends a couple chapters in, in, in the Word of God here disputing with God. I'm the wrong man. Great plan, wrong guy. I'll do anything you ask. Just don't ask me to do that. But God is insistent. Oh, no, Moses, but you will. That's what happened the day that God asked Jonah to evangelize the Ninevites. See, the Ninevites were the enemy. They were the people Jonah hated. And here's God asking him to go and, and have a revival in that town. Jonah knowing all well and good that if these people turn to God, they may be spared. And they may become the ones to come and create great havoc in his own country. This is the God who asked a young virgin named Mary to carry in her womb a child, though she'd never been with a man, and to take the scorn that would bring on her. 
This is the God who asked his own son, Jesus, to go to a cross and die for you. Even when his son said, oh, Father, if there's another way, let it be. And you know that the history of the church down through the ages is just full of accounts of men and women who were asked to do the very thing they feared or hated and to do so for Jesus' sake. Let me be more personal yet, more to the point. If you are serious about following Christ wherever it may take you, you too need to be ready to perform some personally distasteful task. Nobody who is serious about following Christ can do so for long without hearing his call to go somewhere you do not wish to go or to stay when everything in you says go. Or perhaps he will call you to love the very person that you hate or again to watch a spouse or a child die from some dreadful disease or to take the role of caregiver for your parents, or simply to give up some personal dream in order to live what seems to you to be a very ordinary, pale life of everyday discipleship. Let it be known at the outset that the same God who grants wonderful and gracious gifts to his children will, on occasion, will on occasion call on us to do the thing we have no desire to do. The only question is, how will we respond? Will we find an excuse for not following his lead? Or will it be said of us like it was said of the Levites that we did what was commanded of us? A fourth trait of a Levite is that he is one who has consecrated himself to the Lord's service. Verse 29, we're told there that the Lord set the Levites apart unto himself that day. Literally, it's a command, and the words are very different than we see in the English. The command in the Hebrew is, fill your hand. It refers to the offering that was brought to God by one who desired to consecrate, consecrate his entire life to the Lord and be ordained to the Lord's service. The thought is that by their willingness to serve God and God alone, even at the price of their own families, they had shown themselves worthy to serve God in a special role from that day forward. And the thought is further that, that even as God was now setting them apart, consecrating them for his service, they were likewise to consecrate themselves for his service. You see, what had begun as a single act of extraordinary obedience and devotion to God was to give birth to a lifetime of faithful service to him. A recognition that all of life is to have one single focus, and that is the honor and the glory of our God. You know, occasionally we'll come across uh, a story of a soldier who served his country well in a foreign land under the most desperate of circumstances, came home as a hero, and then for reasons unknown, got involved in a life of crime or abuse, spent the rest of his days 
doing the complete opposite of what he had done in that moment, that crisis moment of glory. And in similar fashion, we may occasionally hear of a man or woman who has had a marvelous, a miraculous conversion experience and accomplished some great work for Christ in his early days, but later disappears from the scene, whether as a result of falling prey to temptation or simply as a result of getting lost in the everyday stuff of life. Many years ago now, during that season in my life when I was pastoring close to our seminary, and had occasion for young men to come regularly and ask to be discipled or to be interned for ministry. One particular young man came to my office. He was unusual. He was unusual in that he had exceptional gifts. His early ministry set him apart from other young pastors. He had become well known even though he was still a student at the seminary. I remember that I was privileged to preach his ordination service. But you know something? His early success in ministry sputtered and then rather quickly collapsed as he gave way to first one temptation and then another. Why? It had to do with his failure to consecrate his everyday life, the little stuff to God's service. And the same young man who was so successful in crisis proved incapable of dealing with the day-to-day challenges of the Christian life. My last contact with him some years ago now was a contact with him in prison. Not content with a single great success in his service, God now sets the Levites aside for a lifetime of service and commands them to do the same, to set themselves aside in that manner. So too, his call on your life and on mine is for a lifetime of what may seem at times very trivial stuff. Finally, we note that a Levite is one who considers himself blessed. Blessed to do the Lord's bidding, no matter how difficult or humble that task may be. The final thought left with us in this story appears in verse 29. And he, God, has blessed you this day, says Moses. Exactly what was it for which God blessed the Levites? Derek Kidner writes, it's important to realize that it was not the nature of the vengeance, the putting to death of their neighbors and family members that secured their blessing. It was the wholehearted following of God. It was the counting of other tithes as nothing compared to their tie to Him. But that raises another question. I wonder whether the Levites felt blessed by God as they carried out his command to put to death their own friends and family. I wonder if they said to one another, boy, God's really blessing us today, isn't he? Or again, 
when in the years to come it became clear to them that God's ongoing blessing on them would mean not only a special place of honor and service in the tabernacle, but also the fact that they, unlike all their brothers of the other tribes, would not have the right to own land. They would forever be without their own parcel of land, their own American dream house. I wonder whether their response to that reality was, oh goody, another blessing from God. You say, what's your point? Just this. God's richest blessings, lavished on those who are devoted to Him in His glory, seldom look like the temporal gifts sought after by the name it and claim it gang. They rarely make us rich or famous or popular with the crowds. Instead, they come to us in the form of privilege, the privilege to do some difficult task in His name and for His glory, the strength and the enabling to carry out that task. Or they come to us in the form of humble service which goes almost totally unnoticed by anybody else. The question is, do we recognize His blessings for what they are? Do we see life's greatest trials as an opportunity to make His name great? Do we see the mundane task of each day caring for our family, helping a neighbor, driving an ill friend to the doctor's office as the blessing of God on our lives, the blessing of being called upon to serve others in His name? To see these everyday opportunities to serve as God's blessing in our lives is to understand His calling on our lives. And when in the course of serving others, we name His name and we tell others of a Savior who died so that they might live a whole and a meaningful and an eternal life, then then we are truly most blessed. It's been challenging to do this series with you over the last six weeks now. Um, I have never done a series like this before. You probably say, well, I hope you never do another one, but I <laughs> never felt led to do so. There's an incredible amount a significant truth here in this chapter. It's a pivotal chapter. I don't know, too often I think we miss that. It's a pivotal chapter in the life of God's people, and it's been a real honor to have the opportunity to present these messages with you. I conclude this morning's message in our series in Exodus 32 with two appeals, two summons, if you will, to those among us this morning who have just been along for the ride. You know the gospel, you've tasted the good things of God, and you have never turned from your private sin and received by faith God's gift of new life in Christ. You know who you are. Don't wait. Don't tarry. Come to Him today. To the rest of us, 
openly identify with Christ and His cause. Openly identify with Him. We have more than enough closet Christians today. Let Jesus be not only in your hearts, but also on your lips. The world around us is quite literally dying for a Savior. Just let them know who you're for and why. Pray with me. Spirit of God, your call upon our lives is not always easy. Sometimes it's extremely difficult. Sometimes it, it's a call to the mundane, to be faithful to you in day-to-day -day service in the most mundane ways. And yet your call is precious. It is blessing for your people when we rightly understand it. Lord, we have recently stopped for a day just to give thanks. And our hearts have been turned to you. We thank you for many things, and this morning we pause again to thank you for this, that you've called us to faithful service, and you've promised to see us through to the end. May we be faithful to your call upon our life. Who is for the Lord? Let that one step out. Proclaim the name of Jesus and faithfully serve you to the end. Amen.